Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 3. For those of you who are new, welcome. Just to let you know, we are studying the book of Romans here at Calvary on Wednesday nights. And in our study in Romans, we are currently in the second major section of the book, a section that runs from chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. This section is dealing with one of the most important doctrines in the Christian faith, the doctrine of justification. In this section, Paul is basically telling us how fallen sinners can be made right with God. The great problem today, guys, and I don't have to tell you, you know, the great problem today is that most people already think they're right with God. And the reason is because they either have a high opinion of themselves or a low opinion of God or both. Well, how about a high view of self? That's uh, not something we see too much today. Uh, I'll read you. You can write down the references. I'm not going to have you turn to all of these, but I will have you turn to a few. But I just want to read the first three passages under this idea of people have a high view of self. Proverbs 30, starting with verse 11. There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. We're living in that generation. We are living in that generation. It's a rebellious generation for the most part. We see it on the streets of our cities um, every day in the news. Proverbs 16, verse 2. All the ways of a man are, listen, pure in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the spirit. He sees the heart. Everyone thinks they're doing a great job. What is it, Proverbs 20, verse 6? Pretty much every person thinks that they're a good person and deserve heaven. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. Well, quite a few, actually. Not that it's true. But the Pharisees thought they were clean, that by their religious deeds and works, they had cleansed themselves and were pure in God's eyes. Not so, but that's what they thought. A lot of folks are harboring under that delusion, that because they do certain things, go to church, pray rosaries, light candles, help out in the local food pantry, and so on and so forth, that they have cleansed themselves from their sin. And the Bible says that's impossible. How about a low view of God? I'm going to read to you something. I'll have you turn to this one, Psalm 50. This is a, one of the most hard-hitting psalms in the book of Psalms. But it does tell us how some have a low view of God. Psalm 50, starting with verse 16. This is pretty, uh, you know, for people that think that God's this benevolent, gray-haired, gray-haired old gentleman that walks around patting the kids on the head and saying, just turn the other cheek. Uh, they don't like to hear about a God who judges sin. Verse 16, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you. 
That's a low view of God when a person drags God down to their level. Where the God in their mind is a God that's soft on sin. You know, somebody that doesn't really punish sin, that feels the way they do about the evil things that they're doing. Not so bad. Not so bad. And God says, well, it is bad. And even though I kept silent for a while to give you a chance to repent, but uh, these things you have done and I kept silent, you thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them, all your sins, in order before you, before your eyes. That's on the day of judgment. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. You know, a lot of folks um, don't believe in the God of the Bible anymore. And a lot of those who do, well, I think it was Francis Schaeffer that once said, in the beginning God made us in his image and likeness, and now man has returned the favor. Man now has made God in his image and likeness. Most people can tolerate a God of love. God of grace and mercy, but they can't handle a God that judges sin. You know, I recently talked to a young woman who asked me, and she was very sincere. She was not being combative. She really wanted to know. She was talking about the Old Testament because she was reading Exodus and wanted to get some insight. And she said, you know, all these sacrifices and all this detail, it seems so tedious and laborious. You know, why, why does God do all this why does he want all these sacrifices then she brought up jesus and why did he have to to send his son to you know go through the whole big deal of sending his son to die for our sins why does does he just say let's forget it see she had a low view of god not that she intended to not that she was putting god down she was just ignorant and i said the reason that god can't just sweep our sins under the rug and pretend they did they don't exist because he's a holy and righteous god Sin has to be paid for. I said, do you realize that there's only 31 verses in the book of Genesis chapter 1 devoted to the whole creation of the universe? 31 verses. And the rest of the Bible to the subject of redemption? It didn't cost God anything to speak the universe into existence. It cost him nothing. It was the work of his fingers. But the Bible says when it came to redemption, saving lost sinners he rolled up his sleeves because that's when the work really began because god couldn't just speak away sin he had to pay for it he knew we couldn't sinners can't die for sinners it would take the death of the innocent dying for the guilty that's why he had to become a man walk among us and eventually go to the cross and shed his perfect blood for sinners such as we because he loves us but a lot of folks don't understand that a lot of them, it's not like they're trying to misunderstand God. A lot of churches just don't really get into the deeper things. Uh, it's kind of a surfacey thing. We talked about that Sunday. But I told her, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. God said, the soul that sins shall surely what? Die. But in his mercy in the old covenant, he allowed animal substitutes to die in their place that they might continue to have fellowship with him. 
And in the new covenant, he sent the ultimate sacrifice because the blood of animals and goats and bulls could never take away sin. It could only temporarily cover sin. That's what atonement means, kapar, to cover. Could never take away sin. But when Jesus, the Lamb of God, showed up, John the Baptist introduced him by saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. So guys, Paul is telling us in this incredible section now in Romans, that he's, he's telling us that we are made, made right with God, not according to our works or the law, but as a gift made possible by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And because God is offering justification, think of salvation. He's offering justification as a gift. Well, the Bible says he offers it to everyone freely, the whole world. He so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell but would have everlasting life. 1 John one uh, 2 verse 1. And Jesus Christ was our propitiation. Propitiation means he satisfied the righteous requirements of God. He's our propitiation, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He didn't just die for the elect, as some believe. He died for all people, all people. And he's offering to all men and women everywhere throughout history an opportunity to receive a free gift, which is salvation, if they'll just open their heart and receive it by faith. But here's the problem, as we started talking about last time. Everything we receive from God is by faith. It's all a gift of his grace. Grace means a gift. Nothing we earn, nothing we deserve. A lot of folks don't like that, but that's what the Bible says. So everything God is offering to us, starting with salvation and everything after that in the way of our, our daily blessings and food and everything we need to, to live, it's all a gift. And we receive it by faith. But here's the thing, and we're talking about salvation now primarily. There are two kinds of faith. True faith and false faith. Genuine faith and counterfeit faith. So the question is, well, how do I know the difference? Well, we started to look at that last week, but we, we ran out of time. So let's quickly review what we covered, and then we'll pick up tonight's study. But I want to go back and read Romans 3, verses 27 and 8, because that kind of launched us into this little topical study that we'll finish tonight. But Romans 3, 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law or by the principle of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. When you see law, think of religion. People are justified, saved, not by religious works, not by helping out, feeding the poor and taking care of the homeless. Noble things as those are. The Bible is clear that we don't get to heaven by doing these things. Now, they come after. Once you're saved, we have been, uh, what is it, Paul says to Titus, we are a people that should be zealous for good works because we are representing the king of the universe. But it's all by faith. Again, guys, God tells us in his word that we are justified, saved by faith. But faith, again, can be counterfeited, can be counterfeited. So how do we know that our faith is genuine, that it is true saving faith? Well, last week we looked at a list of things that, listen, don't prove saving faith, even though many Christians believe that these things are the proof of saving faith. They're not. 
I'm going to run through these quickly because we took last week to look at these. The first list, qualities that don't prove saving faith. Number one, visible morality. Visible morality. You know, I've met a lot of unbelievers who were moral people. They were really moral people. Some of them more moral than a few Christians I've known. Do you know that I've heard atheists who pride themselves on their morality? You don't have to be a Christian to have morals because they get into the law of God written in a person's heart. All of us have that. God has given each of us the innate knowledge of right and wrong, and he has set an alarm system that warns us when we violate something he has said in his law. It's called our conscience. Now, you can sear your conscience as with a hot iron. If you just keep sinning, keep sinning, the Spirit is convicting, the Spirit is convicting. You keep ignoring, ignoring. Pretty soon, after a while, you sear your conscience. It becomes insensate, and it, at that point, you can pretty much do whatever you want and not feel a tinge of remorse or guilt or, or anything else. But visible morality is not a, a, a evidence of true saving faith. Secondly, biblical knowledge. As we said last week, there are liberal theologians who have memorized large portions of the Bible. They know the Bible. I'm not saying they always interpret it correctly. I'm just saying they know what the word, Satan knows what the word of God says. I am convinced without a shadow of a doubt, he could recite the Bible verbatim from uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through Je uh, Revelation 22, 21, and never miss a syllable. He's not saved. Now, number three. Faithful church attendance is not an evidence of true saving faith. Uh, from my Catholic background, I have known Roman Catholics who went to Mass every single day of the week for their entire life, adult life. That doesn't really prove anything. Sometimes people go to church because, let's be honest, church people tend to be very nice. Not always, but, you know. Um, you know, people are lonely looking for some maybe some friends and you know they come to church and they're loved done and people invite them out to coffee and come on over for lunch and that's wonderful and so that's why they go to church i have met people that own businesses and they come to church because they like to network they like to build relationships because they're trying to sell a product or a service there's a lot of reasons why people will attend church not always the kind of reasons that would be evidence of true saving faith number four outward piety really isn't an evidence of true saving faith jesus told the pharisees you're like whitewashed tombs on the outside you look all clean and bright and white and holy but on the inside in the heart god sees the heart he sees nothing but corruption and vileness and uh, defilement outward piety means nothing it's the heart that god looks at number five serving in ministry isn't really an evidence of true saving faith. Many years ago, as a young pastor, uh, I went to a Calvary Chapel pastor's little get-together. It wasn't many of us, maybe 20. And the pastor leading it asked each of us to stand up and give a short testimony. And this one gentleman, older gentleman, stood up. Never forget this. He said, for 14 years, I was a Methodist pastor and then i got saved then he became a calvary guy not that 
only Calvary people are saved. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you can be in ministry, even be a pastor in ministry and not be saved. Here's one that may throw you. Guilt over sin is not really an evidence of true saving faith. Remember we talked about Martin Luther last time. Martin Luther uh, joined the Augustinian order. He was a Catholic and he wanted to be a monk to get closer to God. And he was so, um, <laughs> he was preoccupied with sin. I mean, he had, he had a heart that wanted to know God. And in those days, Martin Luther believed you had to work for righteousness because that's what he was taught. But every little sin he did, he did, he would run to confess it till his superior finally says, look, you're driving me nuts. Will you please don't come and confess a sin unless it's a real sin? But he had this real tender heart uh, towards sin. He had a lot of guilt over his sin, but he wasn't saved. Here's one. Assurance of salvation is not really an evidence of true saving faith. Uh, Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus talked about Judgment Day and how a lot of people were going to stand before him and he was going to say, depart, he's going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And, and they're going to be genuinely shocked that they're not going to heaven. And they're going to say, well, wait a minute, Lord, you know me. I was in church every week. I, I was in ministry. I even worked miracles and, and uh, cast out demons in your name. He's going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. It's a lot of folks who are really convinced they're right with God. They don't know what the Bible really says. My heart goes out to it because I didn't know until I read the Bible. A lot of people have the scale mentality. That God, when they stand before God, God's going to put all their good deeds on one side of the scale and all their bad deeds on the other side. And if the scale just tips a little bit in their favor, they're in. What they don't know is that God only allows perfect people into heaven. What? Yeah, it sounds pretty radical. I didn't say it. Jesus did. Therefore, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The only righteousness that God will accept up into heaven is the righteousness of Christ. Well, I think I'm good enough. Are you perfect? Well, no. Nobody's perfect. Well, the one man was. His name is Jesus. And when he ascended back to the Father and was received by the Father, it said to everyone, the only righteousness God will receive up into heaven is the righteousness of Christ. All you get is read your Bible. So many people are under this assumption that they know what's involved in getting to heaven. They don't. They have no idea God only lets perfect people in. Well, how can anybody get in there? No, nobody's perfect. Well, that's why Jesus came. Now, we're going to talk about that. That's what justification is all about. Spend a little extra time on this idea. Maybe not get to it um, tonight as much as I wanted to. But we'll definitely take it up next week. So assurance of salvation is not really a guarantee of true saving faith. And I'll give you one more. A past decision for Christ. This is a big one. A lot of folks are, are putting trust in the fact that when they were a younger, maybe a, a, a child at a youth camp, when the teacher or the pastor gave an altar call, they came up. And they were prayed over to receive Jesus. But it really wasn't um, something coming from the heart. They were moved 
emotionally, uh, by the message maybe. I know that there are evangelists. Greg Laurie, Billy Graham when he was alive. Uh, others who are powerful preachers and sometimes people are moved. Jesus talked about the seed that fell on uh, the shallow soil. And when he interpreted that, in fact, we're going to talk about it. I'm getting ahead of myself. But this person came forward with great emotion. So a lot of folks walk the aisle, pray the prayer, sign a card, and they're weeping, and they're really emotional. And that's great. I'm not saying you have to be stoic to receive Christ. But when the moment is done and the emotion wanes, is there something real there, though? Is there a change? Is a transformation taking place? And a lot of folks believe because they walked that aisle and prayed that prayer to Billy Graham crusade years ago, they're in. They're saved. Yet there's no fruit. There's nothing there would point to the fact that they're a new creation in Christ. All right. So those are qualities that don't prove saving faith. How about qualities that do prove saving faith? First of all, in all-consuming love, listen for God, not a zeal for religion. Paul in Romans 10 says, my heart goes out to the Jewish people because they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge because they being ignorant of God's way of righteousness, they're ignorant of God's righteousness, but go around trying to, to establish their own system of righteousness and have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of Christ. There's a lot of folks who are zealous for religion for a lot of reasons, whatever that might be. Catholicism, Judaism, other religions. I'm talking about true saving faith manifests itself, first of all, in an all-consuming love for God. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. You all know it, we sing it. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Guys, saving faith equals a passion for God, not a passion for religion and duty. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Let me just say this. Religious people tend to add God to their life. Born-again Christians tend to make God their life. That's a big difference. It's a big difference. I'll give you one more, 1 Peter 2, 7. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Precious. He is precious. I wasn't overly religious when I was younger, but I did love the Lord. I did go to church. I was raised in the Catholic church, and I, and I went to Catholic grade school. And I really did love the church. And I, I loved my buddy and I when we were younger. We would quickly eat our lunch, and then we'd go into the chapel, and we'd do a few rounds of the Stations of the Cross, you know, because all along the wall there was the Stations of the Cross. And, you know, we were taught that you'd do that stuff repeatedly, and it, I don't know, earned your points with God. But we were zealous. We did, we did love God in our way. We just didn't, was ignorant back in those days. But when I got older we, and we got married, the first thing we decided, Cindy and I, was we need to go back to church. We weren't going to church. We were just doing our thing. You know, we weren't saved. And so uh, we started to go back to the Catholic church near our house. And I got to tell you, 
I really didn't look forward to it. I felt good when we were done because, you know, you feel good when you do your duty. Yeah, we're married now. We're adults. We've got to grow up and, and, and start being good people. Good people go to church. I mean, there was no passion for God, really. There was obligation. There was duty. Until we opened our hearts to Christ and everything changed. Another evidence of true saving faith is genuine repentance. Now listen, not just simple remorse or regret. Genuine repentance and a hatred for sin. I'll have you turn to this, 2 Corinthians 7. Where Paul says, starting with verse 9, Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, um, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repent repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what vindication, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. In other words, I know it was true repentance, Paul said, because it led to change. Paul puts his finger on something we have to never forget. He said, look, there's two kinds of repentance. One's real, one's false. One's rooted, the real kind is rooted in genuine repentance. The other is rooted in regret or remorse. A lot of folks have regret over the things they've done. But they don't do anything to make up for it. They don't try to make it right. They just feel sorry that they hurt somebody or did this or that, or was a lousy father or whatever. Sometimes they'll come to me and they'll confess like I'm a priest. Confess their sins to me. I tell them, look, I'm not God. I can't forgive sins. But here, if you really feel bad about being a lousy dad, why don't you try to make it right with your kids who are adult now? Well, pastor, it's too late for me. Oh, baloney. Don't give me that. You're just wanting to feel sorry for yourself because it makes you feel good. Oh, I really messed up. I really didn't, wasn't a good dad. Okay. But if you're really repentant, you're going to want change. That's what the word means, to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. When you have true saving faith, it leads to genuine life-changing repentance by God's grace, but you want to try to make right the things you've done wrong. If you can, sometimes you can't. Turn to Matthew 21, still on the subject of repentance. Matthew 21, let's pick it up in verse 28. This is interesting. Jesus told this parable. He said in verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to a second and said likewise and he said to his dad i go sir but did not go which of the two did the will of his father they said the first and jesus said to them assuredly i say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of god before you pharisees and scribes when he says that afterward he regretted he's, he's talking about repentance there i'm not saying that regret can't be involved in repentance Sure. I mean, feeling bad for what you've done is part of true repentance, but it doesn't end there. It leads to change then. 
it's interesting how these two sons, the father asked both of them to go work in his vineyard. The first said no, but went. The second said yes, but didn't go. Who do you think really did the will of his father? They were right. Well, the first one. Some about, by your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be condemned. They knew it was right. You know, tax collectors and harlots, they initially lived their lives in rebellion against God. They knew what God's word said. They didn't want to do it. But afterward, they repented and their lives changed as they gave them to Jesus. The Pharisees are always giving God lip service. Oh, yes, Lord. Oh, yeah, I love you, Lord. Yes, yes, yes. But then they threw widows out of their houses and foreclosed on them. They prayed long prayers in the street corner, but it wasn't from the heart. It wasn't real. Again, true saving faith leads to genuine repentance, which produces change. And I'll give you one more. You don't have to turn to it. You know it. Matthew 3, verses 7 and 8. But when he saw, this would be John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. <laughs> okay. I don't think John read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, I tell you what, we need a few more preachers like John the Baptist today. We're not afraid to say it like it is. But John told these guys, because he knew they weren't serious. They wanted to, it was part of the show. You brood of serpents. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits. First is the idea, worthy of repentance. Come on back, and I'll introduce you to the Savior, Messiah. Well, number three, another characteristic of, genu of a true saving faith is genuine humility. Genuine humility. Matthew 5, verse 3. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the humble person. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Guys, look. Humility is the opposite of pride. Pride is what our fallen nature is all about. If you only have one nature, if you're not born again, you only have one nature. And that one nature is your fallen nature, which is dominated by pride. There's no humility in pride. The only way a person can manifest true humility is by having a new nature, rooted in in God. Uh, what did Peter say? I think it was Second Peter. When we accepted Christ, we became partakers of his divine nature. And now that allows the fruit of the Spirit to grow. Look, the fruit of the Spirit, as we have said before, are really the attributes of God. And when it comes to the attributes of God, there is no way we can manufacture them through our own hard work and self-determination. The only way for us to have access to God's nature, his attributes, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, is to have God living inside of us. That happens at the new birth when you accept Christ. The Spirit moves in, and now you become the recipients of the nature of God. Not that we always have to use God's love or we'll always have peace or joy. They are there as long as we walk closely with the Lord and abide in him. But they are there within us. Unbelievers don't have that. They just have a fallen nature. So unbelievers can try to manufacture humility. You've seen it. It's kind of pathetic. Because as they're trying to tell you how terrible they are, you know, I'm nothing, I'm worthless, I'm a worm. That's humility in the eyes of the world. Just put yourself down. That's not true humility. True humility is both vertical and horizontal. Horizontal humility says, you're more important to me than I am. I'll put you first. 
As Paul said, esteem others better than yourself. Vertical humility is, God, I can't do anything without you. I am completely dependent. Without you, I can do nothing. That's true humility. Dependence on God and reaching out in unselfishness to others. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Um, This is a quality of those who are born again. Because it's, again, denying pride and manifesting humility. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus, the epitome of humility. Philippians 2.8. He left his throne in heaven, humbled himself, became one of us, a man. And uh, learned obedience by going to the cross. Why don't you turn to Psalm 51. Let's pick it up in verse 16. For you do not desire sacrifice, David is talking to the Lord, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, humility. These, O God, you will not despise. And again, guys, that kind of humility can only come from a true child of God. Number four, another quality of true saving faith is a desire to glorify God above all else. Now, I'm not saying we, as true believers, all always rise to the you know, maximum of these things. I'm not saying we can never uh, lack in any of these true qualities of saving faith. There's an element of, of growth that is involved in all of these that we then, but they're there in some form or another. But number four, desire to glorify God above all else. Philippians 1.20 According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. That was Paul's consuming desire, to glorify God in every area of his life, even if it meant his death. I was just reading uh, the other day, for my devotions, I, a, um, I forgot the gentleman's name. He lived, I think, in the 1800s. But he was so zealous for God's glory. I mean, I had to stop and just ask God to forgive me. Because I said, Lord, I want to have the kind of passion for your glory like this man had. It was like, Lord, I, I cannot live if you are not glorified. That's what Paul is saying. I mean, I just want to bring him glory, whether it's through my life or in my death. You know, unbelievers don't talk like that. They they don't really, even religious unbelievers, they don't really talk like that. Of course, you all know 1 Corinthians 10.31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The church has replaced God's glory with man's glory in this modern age. And a lot of churches are tickling ears, which Paul warned us would happen in the last days, where people would gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear. What do people want to hear? I want to hear how wonderful I am. I want to hear how much God wants to bless me and prosper my business and this and that. 
there are still a few churches out there that will preach this message. That our lives are intended for one purpose, and that is to bring God glory. That is the only reason we exist on this planet. Well, I don't think that's fair. Well, you don't have to. Well, I'm going to live for me. Go right ahead. God's not forcing you to live for him and bring him glory. I will tell you, that is the reason he created you. And you will never know greater joy or fulfillment or anything else that's positive. If you, you seek to fulfill the purpose for which you were created, that's a life that is going to be dynamic. But you can live for yourself. I mean, God's not going to force you. you got a free will. Some of the most miserable people I'm convinced in the entire world are people that have everything this world has to offer and they're still miserable. Because you know what? Things are not going to fill that God-shaped void in our heart. It's not going to happen. God said he created every one of us with a God-shaped void and that can only be filled with a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Number five, a heart for prayer. A heart for prayer. Colossians 1 verse 3. We give thanks to, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, praying always for who? For you. A lot of folks will say praying always for me. Look, I pray for me all the time. I heard a pastor say one time, I don't pray for myself. I only pray for others. Well, that's stupid. That's not humble. That's, that's not spiritual. Paul the Apostle in, in exhorting the Ephesian elders, right? Acts 20. First thing he said, take heed to yourselves. Jesus said, the farmer has to first feed himself. He's going to be strong enough to feed anybody else. I need the Lord working in my life to draw me close to him. If I'm going to be a help to anybody else, i got to walk with God. I need his grace. It's not selfish. That's just wise. Well, look, none of us feels we, none of us feels we pray enough. That's true. But listen, when issues arise or trials come or sorrows descend, we want to run to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Guys, when you have true saving faith, it produces, listen, reflexive prayer. Some things are so important that we don't actually have to think about them. God designed our bodies to breathe. You don't have to say, oh man, i got to breathe. Five seconds, i got to breathe again. Isn't that great? God said, no, no, that, it's too important. I'm just going to take that out of your hands so that you, your body's going to do that automatically. When you're a child of God, prayer should be like breathing. It's just reflexive. It just happens. And you know that that's when you really have something different inside. I mean, a lot of unbelievers pray. And they, they pray for themselves. They pray for loved ones who are sick. I get that. Nothing wrong with that. But Paul said, man, I'm praying always for you because he has such a concern for the brethren. And that brings us to number six. Another characteristic of true saving faith is, listen, a love for fellow Christians. And please hear me out. For the whole body of Christ, not just for your church or denomination. The Pharisees loved themselves. They hated everybody else. There are folks that love their church and they don't like anybody else. We're talking about other churches and things. They are you know, Lutherans or Baptists or Catholics and they only love those groups. When you're a true child of God and you have the Lord living in your heart, you're going to have a heart 
for God's people. Sometimes people will call me, and they don't go to our church, and they'll ask me if I could help them, talk with them. I say, sure. I don't go to your churches. Are you one of God's sheep? Yeah, I'm a shepherd. I don't care whose flock you belong to. You're, you're Jesus' sheep. I'm a shepherd. If I can help you, I will. Turn to 1 John 2. And stay in 1 John because i got two more after this. But they're all connected. They're all in the same neighborhood. This idea of loving Christians proves we're, we have genuine saving faith. 1 John 2, verse 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother. Now he's talking about Christian brothers or sisters. He who says he is in the light, he's saved, and hates his fellow Christians is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. 1 John 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. Here's how we know we're saved. One of the ways. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. I'll give you one more and we'll have to close. 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8. John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is, and the word is agape. Uh, again, agape love is an attribute of God. You can't fake it. You can't make it. You, it, it, it has to come from God. We, we have human love. We, we can love with family love and human love. But you can't love with God's love unless you're born again and the Spirit of God is in you. That's what John's talking about. Beloved, let us love one another with God's love, for love is of God. And everyone who loves with God's love is born of God and knows God. He who does not love, gape, does not know God, for God is love. Well, we'll have to stop there. Um, we will pick it up next time, God willing, unless Jesus comes, and then he'll do the Bible studies from here on out. <laughs> And that's going to be fine with me. Um, but we'll pick it up next time because I want to finish this. We, we're almost done with this. And I want to get into this very important topic of justification. Because I really want us to understand it. Before we move on then to uh, chapter 4. Uh, we may even get into chapter 4 a little bit, but we'll, uh, we'll see. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your agape love to sinners such as we. Thank you that you have reached out to us with the gift of grace through your Son, eternal life. And now that we've received it, your Son, you have moved in, you have made us new creations, and we are born of the Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that now we have access to your divine attributes. Give us grace to always abide in you that these attributes, this fruit of the Spirit, might grow in and through our lives for your glory in this in these last days, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing now these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name.